Welcome back to the 136th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we'll be talking about the court and how this last week has given us a little bit of time to reflect on what's going on there. And also, we're going to talk about the different civil rights that need to be protected or need to be questioned based on some of the court's decisions. And of course, we will end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling for me. Let's get into our daily debate. So this may be a bit of a nerdy one, but who is your favorite Supreme Court justice? And yes, like I said, nerdy, it's a little bit politico. Maybe you don't have one. Maybe you only know about the modern ones. I bet a lot of people will say Scalia or Ruth Bader Ginsburg, or maybe they'll talk about Clarence Thomas or Elena Kagan or any of the assorted new ones. There may even be a few Marshall people in there. Who knows for sure? But I'd love to hear what you guys have to say. And if you like someone in particular, could you mention why, what policy, or I say policy, what decision were they a part of that you really enjoyed reading? Maybe their writing was amazing, or maybe you just enjoyed the way that they crafted their argument. I'd love to hear this because there is a lack of knowledge about Supreme Court history, and I let's be clear, I fall into that. I do not know almost all of the pre- the case precedents. I know a few of them. I knew some of the, the major ones, but I don't know all of them. I haven't read through a Supreme Court history docket where I get to see different policy proposals and different decisions from these justices, and maybe that'll be on my reading list once I get through some of my other ones. So if you have any specifics or recommendations, throw them down in the comment section. I'd love to hear what everybody has to say. All right, so we said that we were talking about civil rights. Now, our first article comes from Boing Boing, and yes, I do say it in a weird way, but that just seems a little bit more uh, prophetic, or it feels like that's the way that you should actually pronounce it when you are talking about a website that's named Boing Boing. The headline reads, Civil Rights Group Sues Harvard to End Legacy Admission System. So if you are paying attention, you saw the North Carolina and Harvard decisions come down from the Supreme Court and they said, hey, we are going to end affirmative action or directly, basically directly altering the quota system, saying that colleges can't admit a percentage of their college population based on their race. Now, of course, you can still talk about your race and how it's affected you, and they could still have other metrics that are meant to weed out candidates of other races. They never really said that that's not okay. I'm pretty sure Kennedy, the main justice, made sure that that was the case, that at the end of the day, they are not going to really end affirmative action. They're just going to end the quota systems that are at place in these colleges. And a lot of people freaked out on the left. A lot of people were happy on the right. And now you have this backlash saying, well, hold on, hold on, hold on. If we're going to get rid of these quota systems that have mainly helped a certain segment of the population, then why is it okay that there's another system in place at these colleges that actually helps a different segment of the population? And that would be legacy admissions. So let's go to the article and hear what they have to say. Quote, fancy colleges want to make sure only the right sort of people get in and chief among their tools is legacy admission systems, which give priority to children of former students. Mostly rich insiders, legacies, were originally favored to keep Jews out. 
and to this day they help Ivy League colleges manage the headcount of undesirables. Now that the U.S. Supreme Court has struck down affirmative action, which was a key challenge to this self-reproducing elitism, a civil rights group is taking aim at what amounts to be affirmative action for whites, end quote. And I don't necessarily like their framing here because, let's be clear, a lot of the legacy admissions before the Civil Rights Act were probably whites, but now that is a little bit more diverse. You have Obama, who went to law school at Harvard. You have a whole bunch of other people, Vivek Ramaswamy. You have Jews like Ben Shapiro, which some people would say fall in the white category. You have people like Kevin Ingram, who is a black, really, really successful investor who was on Wall Street. Then again, he did go down for some crimes after 2001. But my point is that the base, the amount of different racial makeups at these colleges has changed over the years. And it doesn't just benefit whites now, but it does benefit the people that have been there before and the people who are likely to donate to these colleges. And you, if you know me very well, I came out against affirmative action last week when the decision came down. And you're probably going to be like, oh, well, he's just going to toe the line. No, I am not towing the line. I am 100% okay with getting rid of legacy admissions. I think that it does breed elitism in that, oh, Johnny, don't you worry. Your grades may not be as good, but I'm still giving that $100,000 check to Harvard at the end of the year. And I still know Susan and admissions, and we'll see if we can if we can get you in. We're going to make it possible. And if we can't get you into Harvard, then maybe you could go there for law school afterwards after you turn your stuff around in Yale. It's definitely a system that is meant to privilege a certain portion of the population, the people that have gone to these colleges before. And if we want to actually change the leadership, the people that are going to guide our nation forward, because let's be clear, people that go to these large colleges, they come out with a certain reputation. They have the ability to get jobs that other people wouldn't. They are going to be the future leaders, whether we like it or not. That is the main perception that happens or is associated with these legacy or really well, deeply founded Ivy League colleges is we need to change who gets to go there. We don't want families of the Kennedys. We don't want families of the Bidens. We don't want the Clintons. We don't want the Obamas. We don't want the Trumps. We don't want the Bushes. And I'm not saying all of them have been there. But my point is we don't want to have a system that basically creates a aristocracy and an oligarchy that is of different families. We don't want to say just because you have this family name, just because your family has historically gone to this college, you are accepted in. And especially when it comes to colleges that have the power that Harvard does, that opens those doors when you get out to those key leadership positions. And I think we need to have it open so that it really is a merit-based system. We want the best people to lead our country, not the sons of the best people who got in first generation or the grandchildren of the people who got in first generation and who worthy, were worthy to lead our country. That's not how it should work. And I think that this is a move in the right direction. If we're really going, especially, I think that this, if they have standing, if this civil rights group has standing and they're able to get in front of the Supreme Court, I will yell and scream and be extremely mad at the Supreme Court if they justify legacy admissions while going forward with destroying or limiting affirmative action 
at these campuses. Now, let's be clear. If they offer a really good legal reasoning that I have not foreseen and then, you know, maybe some justification, I might whimper rather than yell. But I, I don't think it's acceptable. I don't think these systems that benefit a certain segment of the population, no matter why that is, purely based on inherent characteristics, that those should be allowed. And yes, your last name is an inherent characteristic. You are the son of said person because you were born of them. You can't change that about yourself, just like you can't change your skin color, just like you can't change your gender. So I think that they have, they may have standing here, and I want to see this go in front of the Supreme Court. And if they don't call it out, it will be hypocrisy, and then I'll be the one calling it out when this eventually gets there, if it ever does. So there are a few members of the group speaking out, and I think their quotes really do speak to what's going on here and can give a perspective that I can't necessarily talk about as well as these people can. Quote, Why are we rewarding children of privileges and advantages accrued by prior generations? Said Ivan Espinosa Madrigal, the group's executive director. Quote, Your family's last name and size of your bank account are not a measure of your merit. I'm going to pause there. 100% true. Just because your dad did really well doesn't mean that you did, you're going to do really well in business. Now, maybe he could pass on some lessons to you, but that doesn't mean just because you're his son that it's going to be the case. Just because he got a 4.0 GPA at Harvard doesn't mean you're going to, quote, and should have no bearing on the college admissions process. Opponents say the practices are no longer defensible without affirmative action providing a counterbalance. The court's ruling says colleges must ignore the race of applicants Activists point out, but schools are still able to boost the children of alumni and donors, end quote. And I do think that is 100%, 100% true. And yes, I did make the joke when I was going through college that, yes, I want to graduate college. I'll probably donate to the college I went to because they helped form me. There were great people there that I loved. There was a great education. But also, I want it to look good for my kids to be able to have a donor father who went to a certain college so that if they apply there, they can more than likely get in. And I'm not holding this against the parents of the Harvard kids or the Yale kids or the Princeton kids. They love the university, and they also believe that if they give a little bit more money, maybe it's more likely that their kids will be able to go there. That is a completely rational thought process. When you have an incentive in place, when you have these Harvards and these Yales, these elite institutions saying, well, we are going to favor legacy admissions and the people that donate are more likely to get more attention and have a little bit more sway. When you have this system in place, why wouldn't the parents take advantage of it? They want their kid to be successful. They know the doors that Harvard opens, that Yale opens, and they want to make sure that their family has generational wealth. I'm not blaming the parents for taking advantage of it. I'm saying that the university needs to get rid of that incentive, and then we'll actually also see who the real donors are, the people who really love that college, who really saw the benefit from it. Those will be the people that actually donate to the colleges, and maybe that will actually change the way that these colleges go forward. Maybe they'll get less donors from Wall Street families, believing that their family will be able to go there for the next few generations, and they'll get more donations from small state kids who ended up going to there from North Dakota, and maybe they'll realign themselves with more North Dakotan values and less elitism. I don't know. Maybe that's me being a little bit optimistic and idealistic, but I think those incentives that are put in place by the colleges are not healthy, and they promote bad behavior, or they promote 
the people who went to Harvard and see how the system works to take advantage of it, and I'm not blaming them for it. It's rational. They want their kid to do well. So don't take it as an attack on the parents who are taking advantage of this system. Don't necessarily just blame the system. Blame the people who implemented said system. All right, so let's go into another article that talks about another civil right, but it is a completely different game here, and it is about marriage. This one comes from the Washington Examiner. Marriage is the true civil rights issue of our time. Now, I cannot do it justice trying to summarize this article or at least give you the the setup that they have here, so I'm going to read straight from the article, and then we can discuss it from there. Quote, America is an idea, an idea unique in the world. President Joe Biden said last month when responding to the Supreme Court's decision to end race-based admission preferences in universities. Quote, an idea of hope, an opportunity, of possibilities, of giving everyone a fair shot, of leaving no one behind. The United States is not giving everyone a fair shot. Too many are being left behind. But what we're lacking isn't codified racial preferences. Our wealth gap is growing, and millions of children are being deprived of equal opportunity because of one of our nation's foundational issues that is failing. People are getting married less than ever. A record high of 25% of 40-year-olds have never been married, according to a new Pew Research Center analysis of Census Bureau data released last month. The collapse of marriage has lost has not affected all communities equally. It is poor and black communities that have suffered the most. Until the marriage crisis is addressed, the opportunity gap will only widen, end quote. And yes, this is one of those things that if you've listened to this channel before, you know how I feel about marriage. And I have constantly said, and I will say it again, and I will sound like a broken record here, There is one privilege, there is one thing that out of all this talk about, oh, these certain people have privileges and they are afforded different things because of their this, that, or the other, if there's one privilege that I will say I absolutely, without a doubt, had and will accept wholeheartedly and actually say should be something that we strive for, it is having both of my parents in the household throughout my formative years having two people there to bounce ideas off of, having two people there with two different views of the world, allowing me to see that it's not all black and white and understand their differences in their opinions. The fact that I had two people supporting me financially, the fact that I had two great people who loved me and were able to trade duties and were able to say, okay, Today, I have to take Alex to soccer practice, but I'm going to have to leave after four because I have this meeting. Can you come pick him up afterwards? This tag team, both working together because of the love that they share for their child and for themselves, honestly. So if there's one thing I can talk about or there's one thing I will accept is that having both parents in the household and having them be married, not just a formal union, but having that agreement between one another that we will stay together. It provides a level of stability that is extremely, extremely important in my view. Now, let's be clear. This isn't saying that, oh, marriages with children are necessarily the most important thing. They're just saying that marriages, people that are 40 who have never been married at all, is reaching 25%. But I want to focus in on how marriages affect 
children. Because if you look, when they're talking about how this affects poor and black communities, if you are in a place like the rural area of Appalachia in Virginia, and you are living in a one-parent household, you have less resources available to send you to better schools. You have less time that your parents can give you in order to send you to different programs during the summer or maybe get you involved in the local sports league. Therefore, you have more downtime and you could get into not-so-healthy habits versus having two people that can tag team and take you to these different events and work their tails off in order to make sure that you are fully included in the community. You understand the value of being socialized properly and you're also able to explore the world in all its different aspects rather than just sitting at home and having to read a fantasy book or just sitting at home and scrolling through the internet. Now, let's be clear. There are parents who are able to manage both. They can work two jobs. They can drive all across Virginia for their kid, get them to all their practices. I'm not saying that's impossible. I'm not trying to say that there aren't great single mothers or great single fathers out there, but there is a strain, and then it makes that life harder for the parents, and then maybe they're a little bit more frustrated with their kid than they would be normally. And maybe there are some ultimate loving parents who are able to do it all by themselves. I'm not saying it's impossible, but it is so improbable that we are setting up kids in these rural or even pure, poor or black communities or minority communities or even poor white communities. It doesn't matter when we don't have a stable family around them, when there's not a stable marriage they're set up as an institution to provide for them, then this is going to set them up for, if not failure, a harder time. And let's be clear, people come out of these situations because of the hardness of their life. They come out with a little bit of resilience, a little bit of bite, a little bit of fight, and they're able to succeed despite that. And that's even more amazing. But do we want everybody to have to be as hard? Do we want everybody to have to show 10 times as much determination to get out of their situation? Or do we want to make it equal and provide the opportunity, the same opportunities for everybody to be lifted up and then really let their merit and their discipline, starting from a similar or level playing field, determine their outcome? And the beautiful thing about this is it doesn't have to be government imposed. It doesn't have to be the government saying, oh, these people are disadvantaged. We're going to give them welfare. We're going to give them resources. No, this could be a societal change. This can be something that we address on the society level saying, hey, we want to have stronger marriages. We want to push these values forward so that our grandchildren will all be in stable households with families that are strong and able to fully support those grandchildren. And that's the way that we should do it. We should do it through society, not through government. So let's talk about a little bit more of the collapse of marriage throughout the last few years. As the Pew study notes, almost half, 46% of all black 40-year-olds alive today have never been married. This compares to just 20% of white people and 17% of Asians. Considering the high percentage of black people who have never been married at the age of 40, it should not be surprising that a higher percentage of black children are born to unmarried mothers. 70% of black children are born to unmarried mothers compared to just 28% of white children and 13% of Asian children, according to the most recent Center for Disease Control and Prevention data available. This huge gap in marriage ends up causing significant differences in educational success as children age. 
One Harvard University study found that both black and white children who never had a father in the home by the time they reached 18 had an identical 58% chance of graduating from high school on time. That same study found that for every year that there was a father in the home, for both black and white children, a child's chance of graduating from high school went up, although the effect of having two parents in the home was stronger for white children. After 18 years of having two parents in the home, a black child's chance of graduating high school rises nearly 20 points to 77%, end quote. So you can see here why it is important because they're doing a cross-cultural analysis here. They're saying, okay, let's look at white families. Let's look at black families or we'll look at white kids and let's look at black kids. And if they do not have a father in the home, guess what? There is an identical, an identical chance that those kids will not graduate from high school on time. So is it because of their race inherently? No, it's not. It's because there's not a father in the home. Now, maybe the explanation that if you add a few years to the father, in having maybe your father around for five years, and that adds a certain percentage, and maybe it's different for whites than it is for blacks, maybe that is a different cultural element. Maybe that's just because there's a stigma that goes around because there's a perceived idea that black kids, if they don't have a father in a home, that they may not be able to get through high school. Maybe the rep repetition of this narrative is actually causing the effects that it is reporting. Maybe that is possible. But if you look at the baseline, the fact that no father in the home equals a 58% chance, not, de not dependent on your race, if you're black or white, that you will not graduate high school, really speaks to the fact that this is a marriage issue. This is a two-parent household issue. We need to have more two-parent households. We need to have father figures and mother figures in the household. You know why? Because I truly believe, and I think this has been borne out by history, that mothers have qualities that fathers don't, and fathers have qualities that mothers don't. Now, it is not universal. It is not an overgeneralization saying that all mothers have these qualities, all fathers have these qualities. But even the fact that there are two different people with two different sets of values, two different qualities, allows you to be better informed about the world. If you only have one person who you look up to for most of your childhood, you adopt that perspective more than you do of the other person in the household. If there are two people, then you learn, okay, hey, one, the people that I looked up to disagree on certain things, meaning it's okay to disagree when we get out into the world, and having different viewpoints is completely natural, and there are alternatives, but also it teaches you that, okay, there is a conflict here, and I actually have to genuinely think about what I want, what I believe out of these two theories of the world, rather than having one person that, like I said, you look up to and you really just adopt their perspective. Now, of course, when kids get older, they question their parents no matter what. They're going to have their own experiences in life, therefore have their own perspective. But I ask you a common sense question. If you only have one worldview being dispoused or taught to you through your entire life at home, are you more likely to adopt certain aspects of it than if you would have two and you are critically challenged to question both of them and really take a deep analysis at what you want to take from both and what you believe? I think that's a pretty common sense question. Now, that doesn't mean that it's a foolproof argument. There are lots of ways that people will attack me on that or at least try to pick that apart. But think about it that way. That is one other aspect besides the support and love that you received from having two peoples rather than one 
who are raising you. And this is why it's an important issue. And this is why I always bring it back up in some way, shape, or form, because I read these articles. I see the headlines. I read these articles, and I think they are important. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a religious thing, which is the beauty of it, in my opinion. We don't have to talk in religious terms about marriage. You can be completely secular and still value marriage because you can see that having a healthy one and raising your child in a healthy one has good benefits for the society. If you're a person that wants your child to succeed, if you want their society, the, the society that surrounds them to succeed and be around long enough that they can see the benefits that you may have gotten from that society, then you can still value marriage. You don't have to view this from a completely religious standpoint. And I think that's one important thing about this type of argument because you don't want it to rely especially if you're someone who's trying to push this you don't want it to rely fully on the religious narrative because then when you start talking about it from a religious religious point of view people that are secular in nature will just tune out if you start from the secular point of view and then talk about the benefits that religion brings to the institution of marriage or the important worldview that is instilling you through religion, then maybe you can actually sneak it in back door. And I'm not trying to be like, oh yeah, we need to convert everybody. But I'm saying that at the end of the day, if you start from a secular point of view and you still demonstrate the value of something, and then you can talk to these people and say, this is why it's valuable. You see what I just talked about? Well, guess what actually promotes that? Religion. And maybe that's a way to convince people and spread the religious values that a lot of people lack nowadays. Now, you're not trying to deceive anybody. You're not trying to, like I said, really alter their worldview. You're just trying to say, at the end of the day, religion offers these strengths. And maybe you should consider them. And I think that's something else that we need to discuss. But that is a topic for another day. Let's jump to our last article that also comes from the Washington Examiner. The Squad's Wild Illogical Attitudes on the Supreme Court. So yes, there are lots of different opinions coming out of the squad. They are coming in, yelling at the Supreme Court, saying they need some other form of check and balance. They need the ability to have another form of judicial review on the board itself. They need to have ethics rules. And I think some of the ethic rules could be an interesting check on them. But also, there is an ultimate check that they're not considering, which is amending the Constitution. If enough states together get together and amend the Constitution so that they couldn't rule on something or to change the Constitution that something's legal, like affirmative action, I don't think there's enough support for that. But the states, in theory, could do that. There already are checks and balances on the Supreme Court. But that doesn't mean that all of their arguments need to be thrown away. They need to at least be listened to. So let's jump to the first one. Quote, this just concluded the Supreme Court's term was filled with decisions upholding the requirements of the Constitution regarding individual rights, human equality, and separation of powers. But the left has responded yet again by attacking and threatening the justices. Two members of the squad, Progressive Rep. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Ivana Presley, are calling for the impeachment of the justices and the packing of the court. Their tired assault on the judicial branch involves similarly worn-out critiques. Ocasio-Cortez, for example, said the court's opinion over the past few weeks signal a dangerous creep towards authoritarianism, centralization of power in the court. Presley declared that in addition to legislating from the bench, they continue to overturn the will of the majority of the people. End quote. And there's two texts that I'm going to take here. One are they really legislating from the bench or are they just saying that certain people can't do something? 
They didn't say that at the end of the day that Congress can't try to pass a law and then have some of these different institutions or different ideas really stand for the test of time. Now, some of them they did, like with the affirmative action. They based their answer, their overall opinion, on the fact that it is actually unconstitutional under the 14th Amendment. Not that it is illegal based on previous precedent in law, but that it is unconstitutional to have affirmative action. But that also means that the the Constitution of America could be altered and they could change what is said in the 14th Amendment. Maybe they could make a new amendment to the Constitution that the Supreme Court would have to abide to. So there are different rules in place and there are checks on the court's power in place if a convention of states would get together. I mean, just like the prohibition of alcohol, the 18th Amendment, we said, okay, we're going to federally prohibit alcohol. Guess what? We went back and we changed it afterwards and we altered it. So we can go back and alter the 14th Amendment. We could outright pass a new amendment that enshrines affirmative action for 25 years from the point of passage and then have it self-repeal itself if we don't see benefits from it. And then we could take up the issue in 25 years and they could re-ratify the amendment to the Constitution. There are lots of different solutions here that AOC and Presley don't want to talk about because they'll either take too much time, they don't actually have the political willpower to do it, or they realize that, no, 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 we just need to talk about our talking points, which is we want to pack the court. We don't like the fact that there's a six-justice majority that would lean more originalist or conservative, so we want to pack it and we want to make it rule in our favor. And this has been a talking point for a long time from the squad members, so I'm not surprised that we're seeing them talking about it again. Now, the other point is the last comment. They continue to overturn the will of a majority of the people. So I actually want to go to a different quote from the article that expands on this a little bit more, and I'll tell you why I have a problem with it. Quote, or finally, take the claim that the court thwarted majority will. Do they mean the court's opinion striking down affirmative action at Harvard University and the University of North Carolina? By what measure do they determine what is majority will? Polling consistently shows the public opposes race-based college admission policies up to a 20-point margin. Compared with their districts, the numbers may be different. But their districts don't mirror the country at large. Instead, they sit in deep blue portions of the country where views are far out of the mainstream. The progressive opinion certainly skews the other way, but calling it a majority doesn't make sense. And so saying cannot be contorted to be an appeal to the rule of the people. It is really an elitist argument, one that says that the only opinion that matters, which is the one that agrees with my own. This is a partisan agenda. End quote. And I think the author completely misses the important part of this conversation, in my opinion. He actually endorses it. He says, oh, no, no, well, you know, if the nationwide majority, not just in your districts, was okay with it, then that would be fine. No, it wouldn't be fine either way. We are not a country ruled by the majority. We are a country that has systems and constitutional amendments. We have the Declaration of Independence that sets out how we would love a country to be run and not done in a tyrannical manner. Guess what rule by the democracy is, or rule by a pure democracy is? It is a majority tyranny. It is tyranny of the majority. Just because a majority of people want to say that Every single Friday is Ice Cream Friday. That doesn't mean that 
we should make every Friday ice cream Friday. Now, let's be clear. I think a lot of people would be in favor of that. But imagine if 51% of this country suddenly became very, very racist and they said we're no longer allowing Muslims into this country. Is that right? Does that hold with the Constitution, with the values that we have enshrined or tried to always strive towards here in America? No, that is deeply unequal and unfair. So simply because the majority wants something does not mean that we should endorse it and that it is okay. This is something I always hear about the abortion argument or I hear about different arguments, which is, oh, a majority of people are okay with this and a majority of people are okay with that. I don't care if a majority of people are okay with an immoral thing or they're okay with terrible actions. Does that make it right? No, it doesn't. There are objective things that are wrong. And the fact that we would have an emission system that favors one part of the population more than another based on something that those people who are applying have no control over. You cannot control your melanin levels, not yet at least. That is outrageous and is unfair, but more importantly, because life isn't fair, it's obviously restricting the opportunities of that segment of the population that is not getting the benefit of the policy. And we want everybody to have the same opportunities. And then from there, we let their merits decide what's going on. So no, we don't want a tyranny of the majority. We don't want a rule from the majority. We want to abide by the rules and the moral philosophy that was outset at the beginning of this country. And I think that is even more important than this author endorsing the idea that, oh yeah, if the majority wants it, it's okay. Now, the author may have just had this here and not pointed it out because it would be too long of a discussion. I mean, I've literally just spent two minutes ranting about it. But I think that this is the trap that a lot of people fall into. It's not about what the majority wants. Just because the majority wants something doesn't mean it's okay. A majority of kids, like I said, they're going to want sugary, crazy candy Fridays. Does that mean we should give it to them? No, because we don't want them to end up being fat or eating way too much on Friday and going home and their parents having to deal with crazy, overly hyped children or just children that are extremely bogged down because they ate too much. No, there are rules in place for a reason that guide how we go about governing this country. And maybe we should actually examine why they're in place. And if we want to alter the Constitution and change some of those governing rules, guess what? There is a process for that. And that's what the squad should be talking about. And then I'd have a little bit more belief that they're doing this in good faith rather than just trying to seize power from the court. But I've ranted long enough about the negative stuff. Let's jump in to our daily delight. This one comes from ABC News. Toddler and cat play adorable game together. So, you know, sometimes you wish your animal would just have someone to play with or someone else to occupy their time. That's why we have kids. So this was posted on July 4th, and the caption reads, These besties are the cutest. And honestly, these guys are passing a ball back and forth. It's kind of like when you would put your feet against your friend when you were younger and you would just pass the ball in between your legs so it wouldn't roll away. It's basically the game they're playing with the toddler spreading his legs and the cat just sitting there and throwing it back. It's kind of inverse fetch. It's kind of cute, honestly. And if you want to see the video in this article or read any of today's articles, there'll be a link in the description below that like and subscribe button. Also down there, you can find the link to the podcast on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcasts, as well as Podvine, and the Twitter handle at Your Daily Flip, where I post Twitter tirades on Tuesday and Thursdays. A little bit less scripted, just kind of going off the top of the head, don't have quotes from articles and all that. 
With all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.